Hello, Three Code Rock fans. Welcome to Rat Tales, the podcast that brings you the music and stories of the Boston rock scene that grew out of the mid-1970s at The Rat and some of the other rock joints that sprung out of that scene, each with their own sick charm. We decided to kick off the series with J.J. Rassler, originally with DMZ, one of the pioneering bands from that era. Here they are doing a blistering cover of Iggy and the Stooges' Search and Destroy. Good afternoon. My name's um, Mike Hoban. Today we've got uh, J.J. Rassler, uh, formerly of DMZ, Rounder Records, The Queers, Odds, Downbeat 5. You're still with Downbeat 5. Still with 20th anniversary. 20th anniversary of Downbeat 5 coming up. But uh, I figured J.J. is the perfect guy to talk to about kind of like the evolution of the of the uh, lot of the Boston rock scene. You know, after the 60s were over, we started moving into the punk scene. Uh, so uh, just got to talk to J.J. and let him talk and tell us, um, you know, what you came from Philly, I know that, and so you. So what? What brought you up here? I remember reading one time that you, you were attracted to the folk scene, which I thought was kind of funny. So why well, you... yeah, and I, that was part of the reason. Thanks for having me. Um, I don't know if I'm the perfect person, but uh, <laughs> I'll do the best I can. Uh, I came up here from Philly in uh, 1970. Um, I was in bands in Philly all. During the 60s, I was in a lot of bands, and I saw a lot of shows. Uh, uh, another guy in my band, his father worked for Capitol Records. He was a promo guy. And uh, if you recall, the Beatles were on Capitol. And oh, yeah. being a promo guy for the Beatles label got this guy tickets for anything. Wow. He was the man to know. So we got in to see shows, you know, the Beach Boys, the Rolling Stones, uh, you know, any band that was coming through town, we saw and stuff, and we were exposed to a lot of stuff. And uh, he was the rhythm guitar player in my band, like I say. And um, was the name of that band? That was the Deserters. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, this was during the Vietnam era and stuff, and uh, you know, we we're doing everything we could to desert that fact. And. Um, <laughs> Yeah, you know, we were the deserters, and we played a lot of garage music. Um, and uh, I was in a few bands after that. I, I did some big concerts at uh, Fairmont Park, and which was a huge thing. We played for eight thousand people my last show there in Philly. Um, How old were you? I was uh, eighteen. Wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was nerve wracking, and and I was new at it all. But um, you know, I never played to an audience like that before. And uh, Tracy Nelson and Mother Earth was on the bill. Um, uh, opening up uh, was Allen Ginsberg, and he was the poet. The poet, and he was chanting and doing all yeah. this stuff, and we're uh, getting. Uh, in the mood for the festival, shall we say? And, <laughs> and this guy's rattling on and, and chanting and stuff. And 
it was just a it was a zoo and it was a funny scene but about a month after that i moved up to boston um uh in philly there was a magazine called hit parader and they always used to say it was a national magazine wasn't it yeah it was a national zine and uh they would just print the lyrics to songs but in the front of the magazine it had uh bands bubbling under it was called and it had pictures of bands that some people never heard of or others in the know did and there were pictures of the remains Barry and the remains from boston the yep. rock and ramrods um beacon street union and that you know i kept on seeing boston in these in in the in folk music there was tom rush uh the jim Queskin jug band and people that i was listening to at home and stuff, and I said, wow, Boston would be a good place to check out. I was working in a record store and suddenly had to uh, leave the record store in, uh, in Philly, and I came to Boston. And uh, Suddenly had to leave. I like the sound of that. <laughs> <laughs> Details will remain uh, yeah, on the know, sly. Yeah, film at 11. <laughs> um, and I came up here, and uh, and... It was like, you know, it was like a paradise coming up here. I mean, I remember going to the airport, and and I didn't have much money. I had a knapsack and all kinds of goodies in the back, and I had about $25, 30 in my pocket, and I asked people at the airline, you know, where can I, you know, go for 25 bucks? And they said, oh, you can go to Boston for $23. <laughs> I said, I'm going to Boston, and... uh I got off the plane and uh, this, I asked some girl, you know, where do people who look like me hang out? And she <laughs> she said, if you help me with my baggage, I'll get you there. And and uh, I got off the subway at uh, Harvard Square, and I it was like the movies. It was like Wizard of Oz. The movies black and white. I come up out of the subway and the movies in Technicolor, and. There were all kinds of girls and next to nothing. There was guys with hair down to their butts, and people were uh, imbibing in public, and I couldn't believe it. What year was this? 70. 1970, okay. Yeah, and I started hanging around the the Cambridge Common and... uh, Made myself a little money and uh, met some people. And um, I met this girl, and you know, she said, oh, "Yeah, I can come crash at my house." And she says, uh, "You know, I spent a couple of days." And she says, "I have to go to New York." I guess she was a friend of uh, Keith Moon, and she they were playing at the Fillmore, and um, she said, "Keep an eye on the house and feed the cats, and everything's fine." This was in Central Square, and uh, I hung around Central Square for the next several years, and it was awesome. <laughs> and, you know, got to see bands that were playing at the time. I remember right in 70, seeing Mata Hoople over at uh, Harvard Stadium. They used to put on shows there. Uh, that was my first show ever. Really? Mata Hoople, right around that time, like uh, 1972. Wow. Um, <laughs> Well, I saw them uh, in 70 in, in uh, Harvard Stadium. saw the band, um, Alvin Lee. I saw Janis Joplin, which turned out to be her very last 
performance or public performance and stuff. And um, at Harvard Stadium. Yeah, at Harvard Stadium. And uh, seeing bands like that, you, you get to see people, know people. They see out on the common. They know what's going on. And you meet one, you meet another. And bands were playing in local clubs and stuff. And I used to go to the folky ones like Jack's on Mass Ave and the blues ones like the Speakeasy or uh, Joe's Place. Um, and, you know, I saw a lot of blues. Who were uh, some of those bands that were playing on that circuit? I need to get grounded in the In, in, in the, the rock circuit, playing. there were some bands that, you know, were local bands that I had never heard of but became fans of. Uh, I saw the Modern Lovers a bunch of times. I saw them on the Common. And uh, I saw them at uh, a club called the Catacombs. Uh, I saw another band called Dazzle uh, down there. And uh, there used to be a, a bar in uh, Alston called the Grog. Oh, yeah. And uh, the Grog had a lot of uh, like glitter was popular at the time as well and there were a lot of glitter bands that hung around there and stuff or like mock bowling sounding yeah, bands yeah and uh that that was a cool dive um uh in its time uh there was an there were a couple other clubs around um the boylston street area where the catacombs was and um uh it was just mind-boggling to me it was all wide open and and great uh this is early 70s and i uh was a fan of wbcn and listened to max Ann's show uh in the uh early 70s she had a two o'clock show and she was playing stuff that the other djs weren't playing like you could always count on her to be playing new york dolls and T-Rex, as well as soul music, you know, like Philly Soul we were talking about earlier and stuff. She was one of the most eclectic DJs I'd ever heard. She had a knack for segues that, uh, you know, I was just blown away by. That's and when uh, BCM was still kind of a really, it a real independent station. Yeah. Yep. It had that completely different non-corporate kind of feel, and it was like they really did have a lot of personalities really there back in those days. Yeah, uh, it was freeform radio, and it really was. And um, I would call her up during the show a lot of times, so she kind of knew who I was a little. And she went into the hospital, and I wrote her some letters and stuff, and. Uh, she said, uh, you know, give me your number and I'll call you when, you know, I get out. And she called and she says, come on up to the station. I'll get you a job. And, um, you know, I, I started out just uh, interning and uh, working on the listener line. And then I got an actual job training the people on the listener line and working as a librarian at the station, you know, the record librarian. And eventually became her production assistant. And is that your first like normal job in Boston? Well, I worked in a record store in a plaza down um, on Cambridge Street near Government Center. Uh, and then it uh, what was the store? I'm trying to think. I think it was called Sight and Sound. Oh, I remember that place. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, 
you know, and I lived near there. I lived at the bottom of the Beacon Hill. Um, and Back when poor people could live in Beacon Hill? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was amazing. The place we lived in and what it is now, what it goes for now, it's you know, a bazillion bucks. Um, but there was about six or seven of us li that lived in that place. Um, and people that had been part of the New York scene and people that became a part of the Boston scene, like Oedipus was my roommate, Eddie. And um, so I got the job up at BCN and, and through Max Ann, I met a lot of people. She she was very uh, influential and, and instrumental in breaking bands nationally. Um, Jay Giles' band, Aerosmith, she broke them nationally. She had a healthy hand in it. Um, we had Aerosmith my high school in like 1972, so that was before they obviously had broken before, nationally. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And I remember when I remember listening to Max Ann's show and hearing Aerosmith on the thing, and I yeah. couldn't believe we got him to play at our high school. <laughs> uh, yeah, I saw Aerosmith. Um, Ready Teddy opened up Aerosmith, and then the New York Dolls at a at a roadhouse in in Ashland, Mass. At the cricket club, it was pretty awesome. Oh my god! And, and you know, that you, place should be like a national landmark for just for that. <laughs> and you get to that know one the show. band and stuff. And and I became friends with Ready Teddy, another local band. I remember seeing them around uh, at the club in Cambridge, which became Night Stage. Downtown drinking about all the thinking that I should be doing today. Maxanne broke Queen. Uh, she had, the label had uh, Queen sent her in Boston for a week to 10 days to go meet other DJs, go different radio stations, just to try and get a foothold in America. Is that when they did Queen One? Was that the album that was Queen like, One early... didn't make it here. It, it's, you know, it was That's the one that had Keep Yourself Alive on it, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. But Queen Two is the one that actually broke them in the States. And she had to take Freddie Mercury around to this and that and Brian May and I, you know, she asked me to babysit the, the rhythm section for the most part. So for a week we were going to Father's every afternoon. and uh, <laughs> uh, Right across the street, right? right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and watching the game or something. Ten Cent uh, Hot Dogs. Yeah, in PBS. we had hot dogs. No, Knickerbockers. Yep. Knickerbockers and Ten Cent uh, Hot Dogs. <laughs> uh, so, again, she was influential to the rest of the city, to New England, to the rest of the country in breaking these bands, and influential to me, you know. She turned me on to this stuff. Uh, Keith Moon came to town to uh, promote some movie that he was in called That'll Be the Day with David Essex. And uh, he came up to the studio and 
he got there early, and she says to me, okay, uh, take him away a little bit and babysit him for 10 minutes. And, <laughs> and we came back, changed people. And, <laughs> uh it, it it was pretty wild. It was it, that was pretty great. So at that time, I'm saying I, I I was really interested in starting a band. Okay, I just want to back up for a second. So you've been up here for a couple of years now. Yeah. And you're checking out the music scene. Yeah. Are you playing with anybody? Are you playing acoustic? Are you doing anything? How what are you I doing had an acoustic um, <clears throat> that I fool around with. Um, I earned a little money. Uh, doing things and um, I got an, my first electric guitar and, and uh, <laughs> I think the, one of the first songs I learned on it was a Mata Hoople song and then uh, <laughs> Silver Train by the Stones uh, and I was you know I had been in bands like I say in, in, in Philly uh, just as a singer but I, I was really interested in, in starting one up here and um, a guy started working uh, as an intern <clears throat> at BCN, and we got really friendly and stuff. We immediately clicked, and uh, Willie Loco had just released a single called Mass Ave. I love that song, yeah. Yeah, it's awesome. It's it's like an anthem for, for Boston. It's like nothing I heard before on the uh, radio either. I was out of a Boston and band. And Billy Lesegian's guitar... You know, I remember Peter and I looking at each other and saying, that's the sound, that's, you know, let's do a band. It's time, it's just about to burst open. And we formed a band called DMZ. I thought about doing DJ work as well, and Max Hand uh, offered me a job over at uh, WTBS, which is now MBR. And, the MIT uh, radio station. Yeah, MIT. Yeah. And, but we were get, just getting the band off the ground, and... I said to my roommate, who became Oedipus, I said, why don't you take the radio show and we'll give you these records here to play. And really? That's how that started, yeah. Oh, that's funny. And uh, So Oedipus started off on TBS? Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. I didn't. I thought I always associated him with BCN. Uh, uh, he was bugging me to get him a job at BCN, and the news department there was looking for a new assistant. And I said, listen, I, get, I know somebody could really fit the bill and Eddie came up and you know auditioned and got the job and uh so his first gig at BCN was uh in the news department um with Danny Schechter so Danny Schechter the yeah. news dissector yeah. okay yeah yeah it's all coming back uh <laughs> so the band's you know that band started in late 75 early 76 uh I we went to see uh Patty Smith play at um, Paul's Mall, uh, the jazz workshop, one of the two, and uh, when her first album was just released, and that was life-changing. Uh, that, that What was the Patti Smith album? Was that Horses. Horses, that's what I thought, okay. Yeah, and... Um, with Dancing Barefoot on it. And yeah, stuff, yeah, and, you know, they ended the set with My Generation. Uh, John Cale was uh, uh, playing bass for them at the time, and... He put his bass through the ceiling and stuff, and we knew that something new was just happening. It was just breaking, and we wanted in, and we practiced and blah blah blah, and did a, a frat party and uh, got a gig at um, 
at the Rat in in May, I think. And we started uh, trading off gigs with New York bands. We'd say, hey, if you get us a gig down there, we'll get you a gig up here. So on a Friday night, we go down and play with, you know, anybody. And on Saturday, we come and play at the Rat and stuff. And uh, it's that situation. Other bands started doing the same thing, that and we started to get to know all these people, like Mink Deville and Blondie and um, people who were just starting out doing the same thing Thanks. we were in New York. Nobody was famous yet, you know. It was just starting to crack. And um, I remember going down to TBS. Uh, I had to do an interview for a show we had coming up with uh, Suicide. And um, when I went down there, Nick Lowe was there with Jake Rivera and Elvis Costello. I had just gotten this single that Nick Lowe did under an alias, um, a single called Snuffin' It in Babylon. And it was just some reggae spoof on the Jim Jones thing of the era. <laughs> and, uh, lighthearted. Yeah, very lighthearted, <laughs> Snuffin' It in Babylon. And I remember asking him for his autograph, and Elvis Costello was a little perturbed that I wasn't paying much attention to him, or attention wasn't being paid to him, but I didn't know him. I knew who Nick Lowe was, though. And, um, he asked if he could come to our show that night, and I said, yeah, I'd be happy to put you on the list. Put me on the list for your show at the Paradise. And he squawked and, and didn't really want to. I said, I, I don't have any control over that, and... I said, well, uh, you know, good luck trying to get in our show. I don't, you know. Is this Elvis? Yeah. <laughs> and he came down to the rat and tried to get in, and the bouncers came down to get me, and they said, there's some English twit up there who says his name is Elvis, and he says he's supposed to be on the guest list. And uh, I went upstairs, and I asked him, did you put me on your list? And he said, no. I said, no, I can't come in unless he pays. And <laughs> Two bucks probably, right? Yeah, yeah. it yeah, was yeah, only yeah. a couple of bucks. It was like, dude, come on. Um, and, you know, I'm only saying that just to emphasize that nobody had made it yet. Nobody knew who each other was or about to be or anything like it. And, you know... It, I tell that that story has been told a number of times. I'm not proud of it now. It's not, you know, nobody wants to be an asshole. Nobody intends to be, you know. Right. It's not intentional. Sometimes it just happens. <laughs> and he was and I was. And, you know, we were both digging in our heels. When assholes collide. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, meanwhile, Nick Lowe and Jake Rivera, just, they're laughing at it and, uh, but those things happen, and then uh, you know, we had a lot of bands that came through that nobody had heard of, and uh, like the Police, we played with the Police one time, or I was in a band that played with the Police. That was still DMZ. Well, I was in a, a band called the Mark Thor Band as well. Oh yeah. Um, they were on the Live at the Rat album, and uh, he got 
a bunch of us together to, to support him. And we got a gig out of it, actually, opening for the police. people there at all and they, you know they were all pissy about it because and upset because there wasn't a big crowd and stuff but there wasn't big crowds for us when we went to different cities and stuff and and yeah that's it's just the way it was well that's the reality of rock and roll when you i mean especially when a scene is starting out i mean so i just want to back up for a second one of the things that sure. i just think i want to bring the folks back to boston so when you guys are playing, when you're just when DMZ just starts out, and your other the other guys you're playing with, so who are your contemporaries? Who else is like populating the Rat on a regular basis? What are the bands that are down there? Like, because oh, I was think I was there. Let's, let's I'm gonna get the right dates in here, but yeah. Well, uh, our first date there was in '76, April or May of '76. The real kids were. Uh, we went to see the real kids a couple times, and we really liked them. That was somebody we could relate to, and I personally have been a huge fan of theirs all along. Um, I love John Felice's songwriting, and I like the way the band. And played. he played with the Modern Lovers too. So do you know? He, yeah, he back played. Then? Yeah, he was in a in a an early formation of the Modern Lovers. Okay, and um. Uh, Mickey Cleaning the Mez was another band. Um, Mickey wrote some great songs, and Asa Brebner, uh, the late Asa Brebner, was his lead guitar player, and uh, he had he went through a couple of drummers, but one of them was Howie Ferguson, who later went into the Real Kids. Um, so there were bands that we. Could identify with uh, the Inflictors uh, or another. The Inflictors. Where'd you get that cigarette? Yeah, where'd you get? That's yeah, I always remember that one. They, yeah, they were a good band and uh, who never made a, a splash like they could have. Um, they were cool looking too, as I recall. They were odd looking. Yeah, there. everybody was different. And uh, uh, their drummer Gary was a good. Well, all of them were good guys. Um, that was that was one of the things about the early rat scene. There there was a, a good deal of camaraderie between some of the bands. Um, we used to borrow uh, the Real Kids PA system to rehearse with all the time. Well, we'd rent it from them. <laughs> you weren't that close. <laughs> uh, uh, it, yeah, it was it was nominal, like twenty five yeah. bucks or something. And everybody throws in five dollars, and we get a PA. And uh. I remember when we were changing lead singers, 
we asked Alpo to come up and audition, and you know, because I really like Ammon and Way sang and stuff. And Alpo was sang with the real kids. Yeah, he um, he was their bass player. Yeah, with the Brian Jones haircut and yeah. stuff. But um, Alpo did uh, Search and Destroy. Did, did a couple Stooges songs with us, and he was great. But he was loyal to the kids, and he wasn't leaving. But it was fun working with him for the time. Now, Reddy and, Teddy was in the scene then at that time too, right? Yeah. Uh, I saw Reddy Teddy in 72 or 3. Well, I saw them with with the Dolls and uh, Aerosmith show. But they used to play uh, at a place called The Club in Cambridge. Yep. On Main Street that became Night Stage. Um, and I think it had been called the Ace of Clubs or something, or the Two of Clubs. But um, our first date at the Rat, the very next day, was our first date at the club and stuff. And I had seen Reddy Teddy there several times uh, years before, and I really liked him. I saw Willie Loco there as well. And, you know, there was something raw and primitive and flash and exciting at the same time that I could relate to, you know, it was something that was, it wasn't like the bands you heard on the radio, like the Sweet and stuff like that. And yeah. Brewer and Shipley. <laughs> <laughs> and all these bands. I even forgot about them. <laughs> uh, but Doobie Brothers and stuff like that, I just, we couldn't relate to it at all. Yeah. Uh, however, trying to get gigs early on, the owners of clubs wanted somebody was that was like the Doobie Brothers or Brewer and Shipley. They wanted just, you know, nice middle-of-the-road stuff. And they didn't want people like DMZ who wore makeup and, you know, were ruthless on stage. I mean... You guys actually wore makeup? Was that like a, a kind of outcropping from like the glam stuff? Or? Yeah, from the dolls. Yeah, yeah. and and stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah, we we did for better or worse, and but we did all the time. It was like it wasn't just for stage. I, you know, that's that's just the way we looked, really, and the way we dressed. Yeah, man. I mean. Y- you gotta live it. You can't just put it on as an act. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Um, you know, so it was really difficult to get gigs outside of a couple clubs in Boston. They would have thought you were nuts. They would. That's yeah, exactly. Absolutely. You know. Think you're nuts. It's <laughs> I, hard enough to deal with long hair in that period of right. time. You know, coming out of the early seventies, it's like they still think long hair people are causing trouble. You put exactly. boys in makeup and it's like, yeah, I don't think that. so. This is 1972. We played this <laughs> uh, this place in Peabody or Saugus or something out on Route 1 and we're loading our stuff in and there's a band up there all in matching you know, uniforms. Little like the old Beatles and, and uh, you know. Herman's Hermits. Yeah. yeah. And we came on and they came up after the first song and they said turn it down the second song they said turn it down or you're out of here and we turned it up that's and rock and roll they said we're going to be thrown out of here let's go out in a blaze <laughs> and we finished the song and there were cops there and everything and 
they let us out of town and to the edge of the town limits and all this stuff. It was so ridiculous. But and this is DMZ. Yeah. Oh, people did not want it at all. They didn't want to hear about it. They didn't want to hear that. Heard 10 seconds of the demo and oh my, they didn't understand. And in hindsight, I can't expect them to. And there was a lot of just, you know, giving them the finger type of attitude. So what was that? What was that sound like? And you know, we're gonna hear we're gonna hear a couple of cuts anyway. So why don't we like? Because it's I mean, it's very jarring coming from like listening to uh, like even like a Led Zeppelin album. Yeah, which is a little more structured to get in three chord rock where you're just like nuts. So <laughs> so what is what like what are some of the tunes that you play? Was it like garage rock tunes that you guys started with or original stuff we, or what? Well, when Peter and I first. Peter Greenberg. First set, yeah, Peter Greenberg and I did the first set list for the first shows and stuff. It was just covers, and it was typical garage rock covers. You know, there'd be a Stones here or Roxy Music, you know, even a Bowie thing or, or a couple dolls. Like Queen Bitch or something like you know, that. Something, yeah, rock know, and roll, though, right? Yeah. And uh, our first lead singer didn't work out, uh, so we got another one who was Jeff Conley, Mono Man, and... Jeff brought in a lot of tunes, and he wrote. He started writing tunes, and that was good. Um, but we were playing stuff by the Flame and Groovies, the Stooges, MC5, uh, mixed in with girl group stuff. We played stuff by the Shangri-Las and stuff. And, really? Yeah, give them a great big kiss and stuff. And you know, did it, you punk them up? Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. And the audiences loved it. At the Rat and at the at Cantones and at the few clubs in town that catered to this, they ate it up. They loved it. Some of them did. Um, I mean, there were you could see tables of people getting up and leaving immediately because it, it it was off the wall. Like you say, jarring is a very good word for it. Um, and we would argue on stage between ourselves. <laughs> And push would come to shove, and yeah, I think David Robinson talked about it in a recent film. He'd look around to wonder where the band was. We we're all on the floor wrestling and stuff, and it was just—it was volatile. It was—that's the kind of music it was, and it's the kind of people we were. There's a lot of drinking involved. Do you think? Some people <laughs> imbibed <laughs> with all kinds of things. Um, it it was a free for all, and, and you were young, and you were, you know, there was no problem in in meeting girls and stuff or women, and, and you know, you're young kids, and you, and you're getting jacked up and and raising hell, and having a good time, and you know, who wouldn't want to do that, and you know, we. We tried our best to be calm, but when people are handing you free drinks all night and free other things, it, it's it's difficult to remain um, polite and sober on stage. Uh, it sounds like that. So one of the one of the other things you were talking about that uh, you started mentioning, like, so people aren't used to this kind of music at all, yeah. and it's like so. Then you start to get some clubs. So let's talk about some of the clubs. So you mentioned the club. 
Yeah. And you mentioned uh, you and Cantones. I talked yeah, Cantones, which I loved, which was yeah. like an Italian restaurant during the day, yeah. and then yeah. it was a, um, a, a punk club at night. Yeah, and I loved that place. And then uh, there was the Underground, which short lived in Alston, I think. Yeah. Then there was the Space, which was in the Financial District, right. which made no sense. That was an well, I as just, was Cantones. That was in the Financial. Oh, that's right, District. Cantones. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's t- yeah. Okay. The, so why don't you talk about some of the clubs and tell me some stories? The guy. Um, it ran Cantones, uh, you know. He, it was an Italian lunch place for. For the financiers, uh, and his son Mario, wanted to put clubs in there. Now, and, is this Mario? That's the comedian. Yeah. Oh, I, okay. He's hilarious. Uh, he is. Yeah, well, he started booking gigs in there, and it was just it was a back room with one bare light bulb hanging down. And the girls' room was off of the stage, so the girls had to go up on the stage to go into the girls' room and stuff. And you know, it was it was embarrassing and, and and stuff. But people had a blast in that joint, and it was it was filthy. There was rats everywhere and stuff. <laughs> and to think that people were eating there and paying high prices for it during the day is crazy. Um, but we did. A, I remember doing a show there with the Cramps when they first started. They, you know, they were in a similar boat as us. They you couldn't you just couldn't get a gig, and uh, they came up and played Cantones with us, and stuff. And um, Mario went on to other things. He got a TV show, uh, WOR New York. Uh, and it was a crazy, he was sort of like a Pee Wee Herman type guy, and he was off the wall, but he would have bands on. He'd have the Ramones on and stuff, and, and you know, it was always fun to watch because it was Mario being nuts. This is a really <laughs> highly animated guy yeah. besides being funny, and he yeah. was like a real kind of over-the-top, like Paul yeah. Lindish kind of character too, yes. right? Yeah, yes. so he was hilarious, and that was before anybody knew what that meant. Right, <laughs> right, right, and he, he was... He was a fun guy. He was also always a fun guy. So I had a children's show at one time. <laughs> I had a children's I did. It was called Steam Pipe Alley. And it was, a, some of you know it. Oh, wow. A lot of people don't, though, because it was like in New York. I did, you know, right, I, I did it for five, five years with children. Five years of booze and dope. <laughs> the Ramones, it was the same thing. One of their first shows before the first album came up was at the club in in Cambridge, and uh, and we were there, of course, and and stuff, and we were lucky to know who some of these bands were before they had any notoriety outside of New York, and because you've been doing this back and forth with them, right, with yeah. with bands and and with having Eddie as a DJ. He would be getting singles in the mail and stuff, and of course we'd play everything and say, "Okay, this band we want to play with this one, play with that one." Ork Records, Terry Ork, was uh, you know one of the first. He had uh, Little Johnny Jewel uh, uh, by Television and stuff, and you know, we, Television was in the early seventies. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's they were on Ork Richard Records. Lloyd and and Tom Verlaine. Tom Verlaine. Tom Verlaine. Yeah, I couldn't remember the other guy's name. They, okay. I saw them in a place um, next to where the Paradise is. There used to be a place called Plymouth Rock, uh, 
and uh, they played there in about '74 or '5. Wow! I, I saw them there. Um, and that later became a club called Dummies that had a bunch of marionettes everywhere. That, that was a weird joint. Sounds creepy. It was. <laughs> I don't think I'd ever go in there. So the two or three clubs that we could play in here and bring bands up from New York, they would bring us down there to the two or three clubs, CBGB, um, Max's, uh, you know, a couple others. time we went down to CBGB for, for one of our first shows there <clears throat> and the uh, New York Times said also appearing uh, from Cleveland Ohio uh, the Dead Boys and that was their first gig there and we became friendly with them and our releases were around the same time our first releases and stuff and DP uh, the EP yeah, or the record? The record, actually. The EP. EP did as good. Uh, we did an EP for a label called Bump Records, Greg Shaw's infamous Bump Records. And uh, we recorded that out in Jamaica Plain on Center Street uh, with uh, the producer who had done uh, work with Blondie and Ramones and, and uh, stuff. And that EP was really good. And, and paved the way and got us signed to Sire Records later on. And um, it was some originals and covers and stuff, but it, that that record showed who we were much more than our album did. The EP? Yes, the EP. That was what, four songs? Uh, four songs. There were four songs released, but we actually had 10 or 11 that came out later on a 12-inch um, on Vox Records, and, uh, and it was all right. It was good. Um, it was better than the Sire record. But we, I remember going down to um, New York to do a, a TV show, uh, the same channel that uh, Mario Cantone was on, uh, WOR, and we were on some stupid Soul Train-type show. <laughs> It was called uh, Soapbox or something, so, soap, soap Factory. And uh, the Ramones, Joey Ramone came along for support. Uh, the Paley Brothers came along. And we're all in the dress room jamming and stuff. And I remember doing um, uh, Hey, Let's Go, uh, Richie Valens tune. And uh, we were on the show with... Uh, one of the power 
funk bands with, uh, it wasn't Parliament, um, I'll think of the name uh, soon, but they, they were coming by in their big platform shoes and their you know space suits and looking in at us like we we're out of our heads. And uh, oddly enough, that's the song that we did on the show, Out of Our Head. And um, we had to go out and lip sync to this thing. And we, it's first time on TV, we can't hear anything. It's all blasting. tried a substance that got us high and uh, <laughs> we didn't know what the hell which was direction going did, on. Did, did you high in though uh, there was a lot of a lot to choose from back then as i recall if you were taking quaaludes i think it would be a little bit different than taking uh, black beauties that's at crossroads. exactly right yeah <laughs> um yeah i remember having a t-shirt that said 714 on it with a line across it uh which was the inscription on the quaaludes and um Roman Polanski had just been arrested for having the underage girl in his bathtub when they were on Quaaludes, and I had the 714 and free Roman Polanski on the back. And um, <laughs> It was a family show, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, maybe we shouldn't be talking about that type of stuff. But the BT Express, that was the name BT of the BT Express, yeah, I remember yeah. them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and they went out and they did their thing, and then we went out, <laughs> and did our thing, and it was it was just crazy, um, but it's it's all new, you know. I mean, you don't know what you don't know, and then you know it. Um, I remember going to different things like that with the with the Dead Boys and stuff, and and uh, bringing them up here, and and uh, it was all. It was all new to everybody. Um, Malcolm McLaren had come to New York, and he saw Richard Hell. Uh, in the Voidoids? Yeah, and he went back home, and he dressed up kids that worked in his store to look like that, to look like Richard Hell, and spiked their hair, and they became the Sex Pistols and stuff, and which in some ways... Having done that, it, they just—they were like the monkeys. They were a contrived, put together band. Now you're going to be punks, and you're going to look like this, and you're going to dress like that, and you're going to give the finger to everybody. And it was just—it was to me. No, no, it and, was and put on. you know it's funny. So I remember seeing the movie uh, *Great Rock and Roll Swindle*. Yeah. And I remember Malcolm McLaren saying exactly what you just said. Really. This is what he was doing. This was my intent. To put together, and he was talking. It was like it was a swindle. Now yeah. I'm someone who happens to think that, as we were saying on the way over here, like 
you know, never mind the Bullocks to me is like just a great album, but, and it's a, it's, I'm sure they don't play that well uh, right. on well, stage. None but, of us did. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, sure yeah, didn't. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, but that it makes more. It's coming from someone that was there. I thought it was just him being an egomaniac, talking about how he was like no, a puppet I, master. But I, well, he was, and and I've never seen that movie, so I, I, I I'm not quoting it. Okay. Oh, oh, it. it's interesting. Yeah, it, it, that's that was just the observation that you know, he put together a band like you know, Don uh, Kirshner put together the Monkees, and he went. Back to England and put together a band that became the Sex Pistols. Based on seeing Richard Hell and yes. the Voidoids. Yeah. Wow, that's, I, I never knew that. And, you know, for my money, I'll take the Clash any day. They were, you know, they were more of a pub band. There was a scene before punk rock. I really hated the term punk rock. I always did. Uh, I still do. I never liked being having DMZ lumped into that. Uh, we were just a rock and roll band, and we played a lot of different kinds of rock and roll. And uh, you know, it's more leaning towards garage, I guess, than punk. Um, but along with the Sex Pistols came this scene, punk. Yeah. played with the dead boys the first time they all had long hair like us really long hair and then the next time we see them it's all cut short and safety pins and all this crap it always looked kind of contrived to me and i remember kenmore square and seeing all these people walking through the thing and i just didn't it didn't seem like real because they weren't the people that i was in the clubs with they every right. i mean we just wore jeans and mostly black t-shirts yeah um, that's and that's unfortunately I still dress yeah, the exact same I way. I hear you. I hear you. Black t yeah, black t-shirt on today. Um, so <laughs> I, I I'm often, a little old to be a punk. I, I often say in, in different uh, uh, meetings of people that I'm with that you know no no one has a right to have more than seventy two black t-shirts, but that's all you wore back then and stuff. That's about um, how many I have. So. To get back, we came back down to New York, and, and Dead Boys changed their look completely. And I remember Stiv saying to me, oh, man, when are you going to cut your hair? Stiv Baders. Yeah, Stiv Baders. And he said, when are you going to cut your hair? You guys should cut your hair and, and, and dress more punk. You know, it's, it's what all the nonconformists are doing now. <laughs> and I said, did you hear what you just said? I mean, 
I'm sorry. All the, all the nonconformists are doing this. Okay, great. I remember having this conversation with a friend of mine years and years ago, and I say, like, look, if you're all dressed in exactly the same, how are you any different than that, guys that are working in the financial district during yep. the day? Yep. And if you're in, you know, the people in the cantons just have a different uniform at night than they do during the guys in the That's day. Right. So I totally get what, you, what you're talking about. So we were talking about DMZ, and I think we forgot to bring in uh, how it came together, who the guys were, stuff like that. So for the people who don't know DMZ, why don't you just give us an yeah, update? Yeah, sure. Well, well <laughs> they won't know the guys or where they came from either. But <laughs> in order to help that happen, um, Peter Greenberg, as I said, uh, was a guy that I met. Uh, he was interning at WBCN when I was working there, and... People had said to me, oh, you should meet this guy. You guys got a lot in common. You dress similar and blah, blah, blah. Because um, we really didn't dress like most of the people on the street. And the first time we saw each other, we didn't need an introduction. It was just, oh, you. And uh, we, when we started this thing, he said, oh, I know a friend. I've got a friend, Mike Lewis, who plays bass. And um, he lives at a frat house in Kenmore Square, and uh, we can sometimes rehearse at his place. I said, all right, that's cool. And uh, then- This is like 73, This is uh, 70, late 75, early 76. So JJ, Peter Greenberg, uh, Mike Lewis on bass, and well, we're gonna need a drummer. We get a drummer. His name is Mike Lewis as well. <laughs> so we had two Mike Lewises, so we called one bass and the other drums. You know, I mean, it was the only way we could distinguish it. And we knew we needed a singer because um, my voice was never great. I sang in bands in the 60s, but, you know, much to people's chagrin. Um, <laughs> and... Somehow, Peter or one of them knew of this BU kid, uh, Adam Schwartz. And Adam was this real good-looking, groovy-looking, 70s-type guy who did know a lot about the New York scene, the New York underground scene. And that was good, and he talked a great story. And he would come to rehearsals with lots of cool records. And we said, all right, because, you know, Peter and I were big record collectors. You know, we were both working in a radio station and getting free records, and, and we used to go out record shopping all the time. And now this kid, Adam, is uh, coming in with records. And he would sing, and everything seemed good. He, he had great stage presence, but because you're playing so loud, you really can't hear what the hell's going on. Uh, and we did a gig... Uh, Mike Lewis and Mike Lewis, uh, Peter Greenberg and me, and Adam. He changed his name from Adam Schwartz to Adam Baum. Who and wouldn't? He, <laughs> and he wanted to be. He wanted us to be the uh, secret weapons, and we said that's not going to happen. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Boy, a singer with an ego problem. I never heard of that imagine, before. Imagine, no. you know? I mean, gee, <laughs> you should feel lucky to be with us. Uh, so I said, all right, you know, we try to think of names. You want something with military. 
I came up with the name DMZ, and it was, you know, three capital letters. It would look good in print, like MC5. You could pick it out on a page right away. You just knew it. It jumped out. DMZ's playing tonight. Yeah, yeah. and, you know, that looked good, and everybody agreed on that. <clears throat> we did the first gig, and uh, Adam Bomb bombed. He just froze. He held the microphone and looked like a deer caught in the headlights. He just, he just bombed. Oh no! And we couldn't get him to sing. And you know, we're kicking him. We're doing everything we can to prompt it because we got this crowd. There was about three hundred people there. <laughs> we advertised it as DMZ and free beer. Who wouldn't go? <laughs> so during the break. We're pulling Adam aside and look, you know, is there some kind of emotional problem we can discuss or do we just beat the shit out of you? I mean, <laughs> what the fuck is wrong with you? So Adam didn't pick it up on the second set and Peter and I wound up trading off songs singing. You know, and I'm singing old Stone songs that I did in the 60s and stuff uh, just to get through the night. But again, like I say, with everything so loud, you can't hear anyway. So we pulled through the night, and we fired him the next day, and we started holding auditions. Uh, and one of the guys that auditioned was Jeff Conley, who called himself Mono Man. And it turned out that this Jeff Conley was the one that was supplying Adam with these cool records for us to play. So I said, well, he's the source. But he was, he was nuts. He was just off the wall. And at the audition, he was screaming and howling. He got on the floor. He's crawling around. He curled up inside the bass drum, you know, and he's singing like that. And he's hanging out the window. And we said, well, he passed the audition. <laughs> you know, this is it. And, uh, it was going to be loopy, and we knew that, but... He's also a really good singer. He's a great singer. Yeah, yeah. And so he knew his shit, Yeah, and it just fit with the rest of us. It just fit. I mean, you know, so that was the lineup. Did that, any of these guys come from other bands? Not that I knew. Jeff never okay. had, no, you know, not that I knew of, and... uh and you had just started playing guitar like in 1970 or something, Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. I, when I was in bands in the 60s, I was a singer. I played acoustic guitar. Everybody did. Yeah. Um, but I didn't have an electric guitar until the Martha Hoople show. And uh, so we started auditioning for you know singers when we get Jeff. And uh, we get a demo made at Intermedia sound studios on uh uh what's the groovy street in back bay there um newbury newbury street thank you and uh i think aerosmith did a lot of their demos and, and early work there the first album there and um, and they were we saw a notice in one of the music stores that uh they're holding classes um to teach kids engineering in studios. And if you're a band and you want to get a free demo, you come in and let the engineers 
you know, do the demo. It's kind of like if you're poor and need dental work, you go to Tufts and let the interns do it. Like I do now. Well, there you go. <laughs> I hear it, pal. I would, too, if I had teeth. Um, so we did that, and we went down and did a two-song demo, and uh, that became our you know, calling card, so to speak. And we played with that lineup through uh, May or June. And then our drummer told us that he was going to go away and go to school or something. Uh, Mike Lewis drums. And we needed a new drummer. And we weren't psyched about auditioning for it. Jimmy Harold at the Rat said we can use the club and uh, audition people. And that was nice, but it seemed like a pain in the ass because the original thing came together rather organically. Uh, and I was working at Strawberries uh, at their first store in, in Copley Kenmore? Square. Copley, before, Copley, okay, before yeah, the Kenmore. Yeah. Copley was first. And uh, I used to sit on a ladder by the door and watch for shoplifters. And this guy... <laughs> <laughs> That's a good job. I, it was. I knew what to look for, but, you know... Um, no stranger to shoplifting. No, yeah. exactly. So you know what to look for. Exactly. So a guy comes in, and he says to me, hey, didn't you play at the Rat the other night? I said, yeah. He says, I saw you guys. I thought you were from New York. I didn't know you were from Boston. I said, no, we're here. He says, oh, when are you playing again? I'd love to come and see you. And I said, well, our, our drummer just gave notice, and we got to get a new drummer. And he said, what about me? Can I try out? And it turned out to be David Robinson from The Modern Lovers. And I said, you could more than try out, man. All you got to <laughs> do is show up. And uh, I was pretty much decided right then and there that because I loved his drumming on, on the album. And the Boston sound is, is uh, not the 60s Boston sound, yeah. Ultimate Spinach, but... The sound that people relate to the Boston groups from the 70s, it centered around drums as far as I was concerned. And there were some really great drummers that made that. And David Robinson was one. Um, Howie Ferguson from The Real Kids was another. Jeff Wilkinson was another uh, from The Nervous Heaters. There was just this sound that was instantly identifiable as Boston rock.
thing I noticed when I listened to the DMZ records, I went back and listened to them. I go, who's this drummer? It's mm. the first thing that I noticed. I mean, no, no, no I, disrespect to the rest no, of the no. band, but I was just blown away. It's true. And, and in that same, working at Strawberries on that stepladder, when David Robinson came in and asked that question, within weeks, a guy came in and he said, hey, do you have any Flame and Groovies records? And, you know, I've been asked that maybe four times in, in 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> and that turned out to be Paul Murphy, the drummer we got later on. Wow. That was just coincidence. But so, Bean, your shoplifting job is actually the best drummer. I, I was around. auditioning. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> and it's good publicity for DMZ. How's that for serendipity? Yeah. So, David Robinson did join the band and... Um, we played through the 4th of July for that. Uh, that was the bicentennial. Um, 1976 being the bicentennial. It, it was a very volatile time in, in Boston's history. Um, there was a lot of stuff going on. Busing. Uh, the, uh, the school busing thing was really big and, and hot. Um, there was disco versus uh, other kinds of music. And Kenmore Square, there was always brawls in the square. And people from Southie would come over and beat up on this group of people, and people from the disco across the street would come over and, you know, there was a lot of so, anger. So across the so it, it just set it up for the people. So. If you know where the rat is in Kenmore Square, there was the rat. And then across the street, there was, was that the Boston Club? Uh, what was that? It ended up being Katie's and that, some other stuff. Yeah, that, yeah, was, that was next yeah. door. But then there Lucifer's. was. Lucifer's. Lucifer's was yeah. the disco. Okay, Lucifer's was yeah. the discos. Yeah. Katie's was still a rock joint, yep. sort of, but it was not yeah. like the rat. It was like more like standard rock and roll. Right, I saw ZZ okay. Top there, Bo Diddley's, okay. all New York Dolls there. Um, so it was. There was a lot of violence on the news in Boston, uh, big time. And it carried over, and Kenmore Square was one of the places. So it was, again, it was a volatile time. Um, Robinson's now in the band. There's talk about making uh, a Live at the Rat album. It was a live at the CB, at CBGB album that was getting some notice, and Jimmy Harold, you know, not one to miss a trick, says I'm, I'm going to do an album, and uh, a guy named Mark Thor was trying to put together a band, and he recruited me, somebody from Thunder Train, somebody from the Boys, from the group the Boys. He got the bass player Ricky Caraccio. And uh, this great drummer, Angel, Chuck Myra, unbelievable drummer. Um, and we would rehearse together, and we got along well. And the bass player, Ricky, and I really got along. And he kept on saying, hey, when are you going to get me in DMZ? And I said, what about the boys? You sound great in the boys. He was one of the you know, highlights in the, in the band. And they were one of the early, I hate to use the word, punk bands. Yeah, well, I remember the boys bands. from a long yeah. time ago. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and they were good guys, and they were, you know. Um, 
But he said, well, they're my friends, but if I can get in DMZ, I will. And uh, it happened that Mike Lewis, the bass player, now gave his notice. He was going to go to school in New York, and we had a opening. So you started with two Lewises, and you lost them both? We lost them both that summer. That's your Mike Lewis problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we got Ricky Caraccio on bass. And to me, that was a great, great lineup. I, I loved that band. And we did a lot of recording at uh, TBS um, just on one mic. There, there's a couple of bootleg CDs that have all these uh, demos or whatever they're called uh, of us just on one microphone. And they sound great. They sound really raw and primitive. And I guess one might say punk. But... <laughs> I just want to just uh, set the time yeah. timeline here. So, have you made the EP yet? No. Okay. So this is we're a year away from okay. that. Okay. Yeah. Cool. All right. We're just set gearing up to make the Live at the Rat album. Okay. And um, Mark, this guy Mark Thor wanted this combo to play behind him for his entry into the album, into the Live at the Rat album, and uh, it was doing that album was uh, Mike Lewis, bass player, uh, his last thing with us. Um, and then in that fall, Ricky became a full-time member, and, and uh, David Robinson was with us for another couple of months, and then he got an offer he couldn't refuse from uh, some band. I think they were called The Cars. And, uh, I think I heard of them. Yeah. Uh, they had been a band called Captain Swing, and they played at the Rat a couple times, but it just... It didn't quite click with the scene, but something called New Wave was starting to happen, and they went that route. Uh, I didn't want to lose Robinson in DMZ, but the offer he got was, you know, they were going to make some money. Uh, we weren't. <laughs> and if we did, we were going to spend it. So, um, you know, no hard feelings towards him he's still a great guy matter of fact we're still friends i saw him recently and um he's a good guy but he went on to the cars and ricky had a friend named paul murphy they both had played in a band called the children's rock and roll which was an offshoot of the real kids um and he brought this guy Paul Murphy down to rehearse and lo and behold he was the guy who asked me for the Flame and Groovies records a couple oh, months God. before and I said well it's kind of kismet and stuff um, and that became the, the lineup for the next few years 
that we did all of the recording with. the first album the ep the first album any bootlegs that came thereafter that was what people say is the definitive lineup for the seminal group to change the course of boston rock <laughs> all the crap that they say <laughs> i hate the word seminal mm. I, you know thought it was an indian tribe from florida <laughs> um, seminoles uh so That's good <laughs> that, that was pretty much the history the dmz Stayed in that lineup until the end. Um, oh, no, actually, Peter Greenberg quit when the album came out, and we replaced him with another guitarist, Preston Wayne. And he was with us until the last hurrah. So that's, uh, it's just, it wouldn't be, it's irresponsible for me not to talk about the album. So the EP comes out, and that's yeah. what you guys were happy with. That's what we sounded like. And what happened when you did the album? We wanted producer X. They said no. And they wanted producer A. And we said no. We wanted producer Y. And they said no. And they wanted producer B. And we said no. And on and on, different names, different reasons. And then eventually they said, you're going with Flo and Eddie. No ifs, ands, or buts. This is the way it goes, and this is when it begins. And uh, Flo and Eddie from the Turtles. And then, from the Turtles and, then, and, and, and Mother's, Mother's Invention. Yeah who were nice guys. They were fun to get high with if, if you did those things. Um, they had terrific sense of humor, uh, obviously. Yeah, and, they you know, <laughs> sitting around, hanging around together, it, it was a blast. And although they had been in 60s bands, they, they didn't quite grasp our interpretation of 60s music, you know, um, and you still had very much a garage sound at that point. We did. Yeah. It, it was much more... We weren't the Turtles. We were more the Chocolate Watch Band or the Seeds or something, you know. It, and they didn't understand our um, uh, way of working out problems, like beating each other up. Uh, <laughs> And we were snowed into a studio when we recorded the album. It was during the Great Blizzard of 78. And we were snowed in to a studio. And we had no way to get food. It was just a candy machine that would, you know, went dry quick. Is this 78? Yeah. And uh, it was difficult time being in those kind of quarters. You couldn't get out. We, we were all sleeping on the floor. You know, we're paying for hotels that are down the road, but you can't get there because it was snowed in. I mean, it took two days for us to get outside the door, to get the door free, and then try and find a Burger King or something where we'd get something other than a candy bar. And uh, 
were calling up the record company and saying, you know, you got to bring us drugs, you got to bring us money, you got to bring us food. <laughs> and, you know, somebody eventually did. Um, In that but, order? Drugs, money, and food? Yeah. <laughs> get your that was pretty right. much it, yeah. Uh, and the sound that came out of that album, we were really greatly disappointed with. There was a, a mixture of slick and s people being unsure of what was going on. Uh, it had taken such a long time between signing with the label and actually recording the album that we had changed the album three, four times. We changed the, the songs that we were going to do on it. Right. Like Sire had said, oh, do this song and this song and this song. And by the time got to record, we had written all these new songs and stuff. And, you know, some songs were brand new when uh, we recorded them and stuff. And so it was a case of not having you, um, was it the production or was it the not having your A material that you guys had really started, you know, right, it became right. so had, popular yeah. in the scene? Or is it because of the production? Because I've watched, like, I mean, we talked about all this three. before, like a couple of bands. Can I say John Butcher Axis? Yeah. yeah. Someone like that, that I heard of the demos when during the 70s, and they were amazing. And then I heard the record, and they, I said, what, they sucked the life out of it. Was it this was, so was it that kind of a case? It, or was it well, because you guys had, or was it a combination? It was a combination. Uh, a lot of the Boston bands will tell stories of the fact that we had this and we had that, but their records don't show that. Their records are very slick. They're of the day and stuff of the time period. And that's like, you know, the Nervous Heaters, for example, Willie Loco, for example. It's not the way they sounded, you know, but it's the way they were recorded uh, with us and Flo and Eddie and stuff. And it's not to blame them because they're two very nice guys and stuff, but it just, it wasn't the right chemistry, timing, you know, there was we were in the middle of a blizzard. We were eating candy bars for three days. <laughs> you know, the drummer broke his arm his arm and on on the last song it just it cracked. You can hear it crack on the record. It was a difficult time. Um I think the, one of they may disagree, but I think one of the only bands that actually sounded good, the first record for the Real Kids, was great. That that sounded more like them than any of uh, any of the other bands. What was that record? It was it was on Red Star label, and it was just called the Real Kids. Um, are there any songs? Cause you probably play some in, in the break, but um, are there any songs that you liked that came off that album, the first album? The, oh, way, the, the, the way that it sounds. No, no, your oh, own album. Our own? Yeah. yeah. Um, I liked uh, Cinderella a lot.
liked Mighty Idy uh, a lot. Um, I liked Don't Jump Me Mother a lot. We, we had DMZ played this cruise. This, uh, somebody set up a cruise for us in Portland, Maine, the Casco Bay boat line or whatever. And we're playing the, um, the cruise and some guys are getting drunk and they want to beat up Jeff or something. And we try to stand in the way and make sure. Why do they want to beat happen. up Jeff? Cause he's a pain. Maybe. Was he, was he possibly being a pain? <laughs> the way you describe well, him, I can see that potentially being an issue. <laughs> at times, but you know, when, when you're in a band, you're a target. Yeah. Okay. You know, that, that's just the way it is. Yep. You know, Guys in the audience will think, he's looking at my girlfriend, blah, blah, blah. And that shit just happens. It okay. happens. And that night it happened to be Jeff that was on the hot spot. There were times that it was Peter or me. Okay. And, um, but that night they, you know, and we were doing what we could. Nobody gets to beat up our singer except us. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it was that type of thing. And, so the song that came out of that night was Don't Jump Me Mother. And it was all about being on a boat and the wa feeling the waves rocking and, you know, or you're going under, understand? And uh, that, one, that one on the album came out pretty good. But uh, so if we go back to the demo, what on the demo would you, if people were just looking for definitive stuff at that time, because it's your first, you the, know, early on. The what demo, would... the actual demo that we did at Intermediate Sound was Teenage Head. Yeah. And uh, Jeff's first original with us, um, first time is the best time. And uh, we did Teenage Head for a long time, actually. Uh, that's kind of the way we sounded. That's that's so that's if you wanted the definitive sound of you guys at that point in time, that would be it. That and the Bomp EP. The, the Bomp EP, the, yeah. We were hot then. We had, we were on tour a lot. We were playing with the Ramones. We were doing high-profile gigs. We were playing constantly. And at the time we recorded the Bomp EP, we were in our prime. We were in a really good groove. And the guy understood our type of music. And that came the closest to what we sounded like on stage. Now, that... that 
the thing said that guy understood your uh, kind of music. Now, did Flo and Eddie get to see you guys many times, or did they say never? They, they never. Oh, uh, see, okay, never saw us. That explains a lot. Yep. And the guy who did that EP had seen us, and he'd seen us in New York, and he had done early New York bands. Craig Leon is his name, and uh, that was a really good fit. I, I, you know, I wouldn't have minded him for the album, um, but it didn't work out that way. One, two, three, four. So once the album was released and we hated the cover, we hated the production. At that time, by that time, we were hating each other. Uh, and it just it just sort of dissolved in a whimper. Um, and this was the end of 78 or so. And, uh, you know, people weren't returning each other's calls and that was it. Um, and we moved on. I immediately started another band uh, called Bad Habits, which evolved into a band called The Odds, who was together for 10, 12 years. Jeff uh, started The Liars. Uh, Peter Greenberg uh, went into Barron's Whitfield. Uh, another band that I love. Yeah, I love them. They're Good. great. And The Liars. Yeah. Uh, so... You were a breeding ground for rock and roll. It certainly was. It's amazing that, you know, we were getting fan mail back then and we still get fan mail. There's still a very uh, active audience for DMZ in Japan, in uh, Brussels, in France, in Holland. They're nuts for it. 
we got together in the early 2000s and played a bunch of shows. We did L.A. and Las Vegas and Texas and New York and these Japanese kids coming up to us in DMZ t-shirts that we'd never seen and <laughs> posters that we'd never seen and you know, asking us daughter, oh, Mr. JJ. And I was just amazed and, and there's still an interest and it's still very much alive. And yeah, it was a breeding ground for other bands in, in Boston, but that style led to many other bands and that style is still sought after in other countries and that blows my mind. Thanks for listening to Rat Tales, produced and directed by Lenny Scaletta and Mike Hogan. Special thanks to Medford Community Media, opening theme composed by Tom Abbott and Lenny Scaletta, and performed by The Wayouts.